Welcome to Pub Natter, where we record each episode in a different pub in Rutland, the smallest county in England. In each episode, your hosts, Tim and Justin, give a voice to the landlords and landladies and a special guest with a specific area of interest or expertise. We hope you enjoy our chats and it encourages you to go and explore our little county and all it has to offer. Like the motto says, there is much in little. When rain stops play, it's time for some pub natter. As you know, tonight's podcast is from the Whipper Inn in the Market Square. Um, although, as you will hear, uh, this particular hostelry is starting its journey back towards its origins uh, when it was a 17th century coaching inn known as the George. Now, I haven't been able to find out very much about the history of the pub. Uh, so what I've done is I've decided I'm going to do what royal correspondents do when they're standing outside a hospital waiting for a baby or news of an operation. And, and they just stand there and make stuff up. Because they don't know anything more than you or I do, do they? But they stand there and they very seriously and very earnestly tell you what might be happening, yeah. what people might be doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what people might have been doing. So I wasn't able to find out very much about the pub itself, but I have found a bit about the geography of the town and the market square around it. And so I'm going to speculate as to um, what some of the people in the pub might have been doing back in the 1700s and 1800s. Um, across the market square from the pub is Oakham Castle. Um, now this has actually served as a court of law uh, since at least the 13th century, possibly longer. And it still operates as a court every two years. They, they have a, a, a crown court here and people are tried and sentenced for real-life current crimes. Um, uh, back in the 1700s, if you were enjoying a pint outside the George, you would have had a pretty good chance of seeing some petty criminals marched across the square after sentencing uh, towards the old jail on, on Jail Street. Um, if they weren't going to jail, uh, and they were fortunate not to be going to jail, they might have gone straight to the stocks, uh, which you see oh, yeah. by yeah. the old, uh, the, the buttercross there. Um, and if you were here having a pint, you could put your pint down and wander across and entertain yourself by throwing things at them. <laughs> um, interestingly, there were stipulations as to what you could throw people in the stocks. Really? Yeah. It was, it, was that dependent on the um, conviction? Yes, it was. And some people, it was stipulated that you could only throw soft things so that they would be humiliated and smelly, so but that, not particularly harmed. A minor crime. Yeah. If you were a more serious miscreant, then they were allowed to throw stones or... Um, heavy vegetables like potatoes or turnips at you, <laughs> which could actually cause quite serious injuries. So being put in the stocks was was not necessarily the, the easiest thing. Hopefully not a Swede. <laughs> I bet that can do some damage. A lot of damage. So um, the stocks in Oakham are unusual in that they've got five holes. Most stocks have four, um, so that you could put two people in them, two legs each. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of 
theories as to why the, the Oakham Sox have five holes instead of the usual four. One is that they're a Roman design, which was actually an instrument of torture because the five holes were for two feet, two hands and a head. Nice. And you would be left in that position, which I would imagine would be excruciating after about 15 seconds. So uh, they don't think, most people don't think that that's what the Oakham one's for. They think that it was the two pairs for two men and a single one that you could put the f both feet of either a woman or a child who was smaller into if you needed the extra space. You put a child in the stocks? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no way. <laughs> it, it, it taught them a lesson. <laughs> yeah. harsh, harsh but fair. <laughs> um, anyway, from time to time, uh, and a lot less often than you might imagine, uh, you might witness the final journey of a more serious criminal. Um, interestingly, uh, there were only seven hangings recorded in Oakham in the, the 18th century over a period of about 35 years, which... Yeah, I should uh, imagine that's quite low. Yeah, you know, we, we all imagine you, you could get hung for stealing a loaf of bread or mm. whatever. So either there weren't many people or the people of Oakham were particularly well behaved, but hanging in Oakham was not as common as you might imagine. I just want to take you back to a Tuesday on the 27th of March in 1789. Uh, and had you been in the George having a beer, you might have had some special entertainment that day because the Weldon brothers were executed. Uh, they had killed a local baker from Edith Weston, uh, and one of them then... Uh, oh, sorry, in between killing the baker and being convicted, they admitted at their trial, bearing in mind no DNA, no CCTV, that they had planned to rob and murder five more people. <laughs> <laughs> why, they, why they confessed that is beyond me. I just think they might have been beaten out of them. <laughs> uh, but they were taken off to the, the little jail in Jail Street and not happy with having killed a baker and planned to kill five other people. They killed the jailer whilst attempting to escape. They were recaptured and on this particular Tuesday morning they met their end. So if you'd been here in the George, you would have been outside with your flag in a veil and you would have seen them being brought from the jail on Jail Street, just 150 yards uh, up the road, through the high street, they'd have passed the pub and the baying mob. And the baying mob would probably have fallen in behind them and as they walked down the high street and passed what is now Rutland Sports and council offices... Uh, or sorry, the wisteria, um, and across what's known as the swooning bridge towards the place of execution. The little humpback bridge that you barely know that you've gone over as you leave Oakham head towards Uppingham, well, that's called the swooning bridge, and it's called the swooning bridge because it was the last place that the uh, relatives of the condemned would see their loved ones before they met their end, mm. and they were known to pass out from grief and fear and the rest of it. Uh, and there's a, 
as, as Whitwell has a parallel with Paris, so Oakham has a parallel with none other than Venice, because the Bridge of Sighs in Venice is also named for the same reason. It's it was the the sighs and the tears and the and the wails of the loved ones of the condemned as, as they walked across that tiny bridge. Um, it was the last time that they would see them alive. Uh, so having crossed the Swooning Bridge, it was a short walk then to the ironically named place of execution called Mount Pleasant. <laughs> um, You're having a laugh. I, I am not. The, the gallows were on Mount Pleasant. It may have been ironically named, who knows. But um, so, it, so where is this in modern day times? It's as you walk out of Oakham, you go over the little humpback bridge and then you go up a, a short, steepish hill. hill. <coughs> there are three or four houses and cottages on the left yeah. and then you come to an open field. It's somewhere around there. All right. um, it's, it's quite a high point and from there, uh, you, the um, condemned could actually see across because there was no rotten water in those days and they could see across to um, Hamilton. Uh, yes, so the, these particular chaps have taken off um, to Mount Pleasant uh, where they met their end um, and that was the last hanging at Mount Pleasant uh, in Oakham. Once you'd, you'd seen the entertainment, um, the bodies were taken off actually to Hamilton on this occasion hung on a gibbet until they rotted. Nice. Um, but you would be able to pick up your flag and avail and wander back to the George and get a refill and <laughs> carry on with your day. <laughs> More um, entertainment. And uh, after that, the the next hanging in Oakham was not until about 1813. And that took place from the new jail using a new gallows. But that's another story for another day. When rain stops play... It's time for some pub natter. And our special guest is Councillor Andrew Brown, JP, who is Chairman of Rutland County Council. Um, we're just going to begin by just asking you if you can tell us about your early years, so where you were born and uh, where, you, where you were brought up. So I'm uh, Rutland born and bred. Hey. So uh, That's quite uh, rare around here. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But as uh, as we're farmers, um, farmers don't tend to uh, to move very far. I mean, my father married a girl from the next door village. I, I managed to widen gene pool a little bit by uh, marrying someone from Stoke on Trent. So uh, <laughs> that was a little bit further away. So I uh, you went to school live in Caldicott. Went to school in Caldicott when there was a primary school in every village, yeah. virtually in Rutland. Uh, then I uh, went to Oakham School here in Oakham mm -hmm. and uh, then went on to Nottingham University and did a degree in engineering. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, nothing to do with farming, really. So, yeah, so what, what was your thinking there? <coughs> um, well, with the A-levels I did, which were maths, physics and chemistry, that right, sort yeah. of fitted in quite well with um, engineering. But I sort of quite quickly decided that engineering wasn't really for me. It was another three years of maths and physics, really, which perhaps <laughs> wasn't the best choice. Engineering is quite a wide term. Was it? <coughs> what sort of engineering? It was mechanical engineering. Right. So Process plants, that type of that thing. That sort of thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was a lot of uh, nuclear power stations, believe it or not, gas turbines, that sort of thing. All really useful skills to have on a farm, as you might imagine. Um, so, yeah, from then uh, I 
did a little stint back on the farm. Then I went off to uh, Australia for a while. Mm. And went around Australia and New Zealand. Well, uh, just travelling. Yep. Uh, ended up uh, staying in Darwin for six months. Hot. Very, very humid. hot. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up working there in a, uh, well, what, what we would call an off-licence, what they would call bottle shop, which is selling alcohol, basically. And at that time, Darwin was some um, 40% Aboriginal. Mm. <clears throat> and it still does have a high population of Aborigines. Uh, I went back there um, four years ago. Almost, almost exactly, this time four years ago. And um, it's very much a frontier town. I mean, uh, the biggest, the nearest big place to Darwin is um, Jakarta. <laughs> Not even on the same continent. Well, wow. That is how remote it is. Wow. And uh, when I was ba- there back in 1988, there was, um, believe it or not, there was no fresh milk. You could not, because it's so remote, you could not get, all the milk was powdered and reconstituted. Mm. So that's how remote it is. I mean, it's hard to, to fathom in a small country like ours, yeah. but, I mean, it's just mind-bogglingly yeah. far from anywhere. Yeah. And it's quite small. I mean, do you, do you think of, you know, it's a state capital, essentially, Yeah. but probably not a great deal bigger than Corby, Kettering, mm. something like that. So how long did you stay out there for? So uh, about 12 months in total. But six months of that was, was in Darwin, where, as you say, it is very, very hot and very, very humid. Yeah. So, so then you came back to UK? I did, yeah. And uh, then I went, uh, went back on the, uh, on the farm. Uh, I, was the, uh, I was quite heavily involved with um, Rutland uh, life. I was, became the chairman of the uh, Rutland Squash Club. Uh, I played uh, rugby for Oakham Rugby Club for, for many years. Uh, I used to organise a thing in Upium, an annual farmer's ball, oh, wow. which um, took place in Upium School Memorial Hall. So that was quite a big uh, annual event in, uh, in Upium. I don't think it exists anymore. So, so was this your, your dad's farm? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, well, it's been in the family for quite a long time. Uh, our family's been farming probably for 300 years. But whereabouts is the farm? So d- with Caldicott. Mm-hmm. And um, we've got a farm at uh, Liddington as well. It's mainly tenanted, so we only own quite a small bit of land. We own about 100 oh. acres. And, and what sort of farming <coughs> is it? So historically, it was um, I used to farm European subsidies. That, unfortunately, has come crashing down around my ears now. Um, but um, mainly arable. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he voted for Brexit. I really? <laughs> That's a, 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 a economic suicide, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, there's no, there are no benefits. I, I've yet to see a single one. But well, anyway, we're seventeen not and a half million people can't be wrong. <laughs> yes, of course they can. When they're lighter, it's just the emperor's new clothes. That's all it was. Um, <coughs> so yes, back to the topic. What are we talking about? Well, um, my farm. Yes. So sixty percent arable, forty percent permanent pasture, six hundred and twenty acres. For those people who aren't farmers, it's quite difficult to envisage what size that is. There's 640 acres in a square mile. So if we pushed all our fields into a square shape, it would be nearly a square mile. But as I say, mm-hmm. we only own quite a small part of that. So it's mainly growing arable crops, and we're right in the bottom of the Welland Valley, so um, that floods on a regular basis. A couple of weeks ago, a third of the farm was underwater. So uh, that's only really good for growing rough grass. Historically, we had a lot of um, sheep and cattle, 
I don't have any of either anymore. I'm too old for, for livestock and all the hassle and stress that goes along with those. So um, now someone else puts their sheep on my land and pays me for the privilege. But bizarrely, um, since we've left the uh, European Union and we've lost the support payments from the EU, I've now been forced to go into um, these new government environmental schemes. I don't have a choice because there's no way I could make up that lost income from the EU by um, any agricultural activity. So now half my farm is out of production because the government's paying me not to grow anything on it. Isn't that absolute madness? Utter, utter madness. The whole environmental farm and food policy is absolutely crazy because, of course, that lost production has got to be made up somewhere and if you've importing it from somewhere where they're knocking the rainforest down to grow it i mean environmentally you've shot yourself in the head not the foot because it's all very well for the birds and the bees here in rutland but if all you've done is export your environmental problems somewhere else it's that's a madness but, but we do that with a lot of the green policies don't we a lot of the recycling doesn't actually get recycled no, it's, 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 it gets put on it's a crazy. ship and sent to china yeah but with food i mean Food is, is vital to this. I mean, you can't live without food. Sure. And I think we already import two-thirds of our food. Well, we're, we're less than 60% self-sufficient in the stuff we can grow ourselves. And now we're completely undermining that even more by, by taking all this land out of production, which to me seems crazy. But I'm a businessman. I mean, I'm not the moral custodian of food production in this country. That's the government's job. Sure, yeah. If I can see a better margin in growing stuff for the birds and the bees, well, that's what I'm going to do. You are obviously quite keen on um, conservation as well. Yeah. Well, I'm a chartered environmentalist, so uh, I do know quite a lot about um, conservation and how it all works and stuff. And we've won awards on the farm. So what sort of things do you do? Uh, well, well um, we, we take the um, areas out of production that are too wet for growing stuff or, you know, the, the soil is not very good, that sort of thing. Um, to encourage things like grey partridges. I saw um, the covey of grey partridges this morning, and grey partridges are quite rare. I mean, there's a lot of French partridges around, mm. but, but um, not many grey partridges, which are the indigenous ones. We've got masses of brown hares. And um, we did a barn owl breeding programme by putting a lot, of, a lot of barn owl boxes up. We've put about 20 barn owl boxes up. We've put 40-odd um, smaller, medium-sized bird boxes for... Um, things like little owls, kestrels, that sort of thing. And we've put 80-odd um, smaller bird boxes for things like uh, hedge sparrows, things like that. So um, hopefully the birds will go in and they'll breed. But, of course, a lot of it's down to the weather. Because so la last year we, we, the, um, the Hawk and Owl Trust came to check the boxes and there wasn't any evidence of any owls breeding at all. Something else that was really interesting that I read about you is you're a freeman of the city of London. I am, yes. So how did you get that award? Um, and uh, it, what does that actually mean? Well, you have to be a member of one of the um, London livery companies. And the livery companies are um, really ancient, um, basically trade unions, which allowed you to be able to sell your produce in the city of London. And the oldest one, uh, the oldest livery company, I think, is the Mercer's Livery Company, which would be started in the 11th, 12th century, wow. something like that. The Farmer's Livery Company started in 1952, so that is quite a new one. But um, there's masses of history 
which attracted me to, to becoming a member of the delivery company. And um, after a while, you, you, have to, you have to pay various fines, and it's very um, archaic and historic. You have to pay various fines, and then eventually you become a freeman of the city. And there are various privileges that go along with being a freeman of the city of London. The, the most obvious one that everyone knows about is that you can take your sheep across London Bridge, which I did. Did you? Yeah, when I was when I was the sheriff. Yeah, so uh, so I did that. Um, one of the uh, other great privileges. All of them, or just one? No, it, was, it wasn't very many. A, a total <laughs> it was one. a few. And it's quite a busy road that, and they, they had to cordon off a section. It's, it's all quite highly uh, regulated. Yeah, I had a vision in my mind: <laughs> two hundred sheep in a border no, collie. No, no, no. I think it was about six. <laughs> And, the, and they, I think they had, they had to have two different because it was it was a charity event that that is run every year, and the sheep have to have a rest as well, at either end and that sort of thing. So it is it's highly organised. So is it several people w- walking the same sheep back yes. and forth? Yes, absolutely. Right. So, so, so and of course you have to pay for the, the professional sheep. They are yeah. <laughs> definitely. So that so that's one privilege. So one of the other privileges that. Um, I think you're allowed to urinate in the street in, within the city without getting into trouble. <laughs> uh, the, the other one, or one of the other ones, is that if a constable <laughs> finds you drunk within the square mile or the city of London, uh, he's meant to put you in a, um, a hackney carriage and send you on your way. And by far and away the best privilege of being a freeman of the city is um, that if you get convicted of a capital offence, you're allowed to insist on a silk noose rather than a rope one, so it doesn't burn your neck as you're swinging backwards <laughs> and forth. Really, really useful privilege. I'm sure you'll agree. Where, where do I sign up? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but you do get access sure, to yeah. some of the most fantastic um, historic parts of London, which you can't normally go into. We had our annual banquet um, a couple of weeks ago, and that was in Draper's Hall, which is very, very ornate. And um, believe it or not, I sing a song at, uh, at that event. So, Wow. So, uh, is that on YouTube somewhere? Uh, no, I don't think it is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some pictures I can send you of no, me we singing. Want, we want sounds. <laughs> <laughs> not much good for a podcast. No, it isn't really, is it? No, that's true. <laughs> I, I, well, so, I, shall I do a rendition? <laughs> no. Give, give me a, a few more pints. <laughs> You can just tell us what you sang. You well, it's, it's called To Be A Farmer's Boy. It's, it's, okay. a, it's a, quite an old folk song, I think. It's, it's about a, a young lad who goes to a farmhouse and, and asks for work and ends up marrying the daughter and, and inherits the farm. And it, but that's all done through the medium of song. <laughs> Fantastic. If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave us a comment in your preferred app. If you have suggestions for Rutland pubs or local guests that you would like to see featured, please get in touch. So the other really interesting thing is that you are in the Worshipful Company of Farmers. Yes, well, that is the livery company, yeah. So that is, that is that the is livery the, company, yeah. Oh, OK. So that is the farmer's livery company. And so the, that, that started in 1950? In 1952 that started, so that's mm. a relatively new one. And bizarrely, you know, you know when we say um, things are a bit confused and they're all at sixes and sevens, well, that comes from the livery companies because um, I think the, the great 12 livery companies have a, a hierarchy, the Mercers being number one, and then the, the, the 12 oldest one, 12 oldest ones are then sort of listed oh, yeah. in order of when they were founded. And number six and seven, and I can't remember which they are, 
but they were founded about the same time. So they had a big argument about who should be number six and who should be number seven. And obviously that was that didn't go down very well with the hierarchy because it was conflict and stuff. So in order to get around this potential row they were having, every year they swap. <laughs> so number six becomes number seven and number seven becomes number six. And that is why we say when we're confused or something's in a, in a maelstrom, yeah. Oh, it's all at sixes and sevens. That's where that comes from. The logical thing would have been to make them both six and the next one eight. Yeah, but they didn't want to do that. <laughs> Here we are. At Maybe no one thought of that, though. So at least every day is a school day. Absolutely. Fantastic. So um, that's the w so the worshipful company of farmers, farmers yes. is part of the free freemen of the city of London. Well, in order to you have to be a member of yep. a, a livery company to, to be, be a, a, a freeman. Yeah, so you get clothed in the in the, uh, the 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 sort of clothes of the livery, which is basically a big cape thing that they put around you. And there's a ceremony that goes goes along with that. Um, um, and what they do is a lot of um, charitable work, basically education. So I've I've done various agricultural courses to do with leadership and things and they paid for for one of them to for me to to, to go on it and they, they run various courses and and give them um, money away to farmers to go on these sort of mm -hmm. courses. and they also run a couple of um city farms there's one uh, it's in one of the docklands in oh, right. in london so they get kids to yeah it's about educating people about yeah. um farming and food production because yeah. I mean we've got the ridiculous situation in this country where there's kids probably in, well not in Oakham but in some of the big cities not too far away from here that have got scurvy and rickets because of they've got such a bad diet now we're not living in the 17th century here that sh is an absolute tra travesty that sure, that yeah. is happening in this yeah. day and age I know I heard a stat the other day that something <coughs> like um, twenty percent of children in UK are living in poverty, mm. and ten percent are in seriously bad poverty, mm. where they're not going to get out. Yep, and that's shocking yep. for a country that's what sixth or seventh richest in the world. Yeah, I mean, how have we achieved that? It's madness, isn't it? Yeah, and their, their diets will be appalling. Yeah. So, <laughs> Leicester Comedy Festival. How did you manage to get involved in that? Yeah, I was. Um, I used to be a trustee of the Leicester Comedy Festival. I saw an advert somewhere that they were looking for for trustees, and I've always been interested in comedy, uh, so I applied and um, got on the board. So I was one of the the board of directors of the um, Leicester Comedy Festival. I did that for probably six or eight years, I think. Wow. Oh, and. Um, they, uh, they run a thing uh, every year called the Stand-Up Challenge during the Comedy Festival. I mean, the Comedy Festival is about to start. It probably starts in the next week, I think, and it's the biggest comedy festival outside the Edinburgh Fringe. Wow. So it's a pretty big event. There's three or 4,000 events within the sort of two and a half weeks, something like that. It's huge. Oh. I mean, when I was the sheriff, I organised one here in the, um, in the museum. We had a comedy night in the museum. But they have this thing called the um, stand-up challenge for basically aspiring comedians who've um, never done stand-up comedy before and you have to do five minutes of um, original material. So I thought, well, I'll have a go at that. And I actually won it. So uh, so I've, I've done a few comedy gigs uh, since uh, I've, uh, the furthest I've been is Tasmania. 
to do uh, well I, I happened to be in Tasmania but I, I, I did a comedy gig in Tasmania so you know international award winning <laughs> yeah. stand up comedian <laughs> you know you know when um, you meet somebody for the first time yeah. and, they, and they say like so what do you do you'd have a really difficult time answering that question wouldn't you what as to what I do uh, yeah well I do very different because the, the list is like and massively differential as well. Well I've, uh, well, I've tried to make my life as interesting and entertaining as possible mm. by, A, doing lots of different things that don't revolve around farming, and, B, meeting different and interesting people like your good selves, who I would normally not come across <laughs> yeah. during my uh, normal day-to-day way of life. So that's what, or how I try to live my life. Um, so tell us about your... Um Role on the council as chairman of the council. So what? What's so the do? chairman is different to the leader. So the the chairman is the sort of um, titular head, front, public facing part of Rutland County Council. So bizarrely, I'm known as the first citizen of Rutland. But the leader is the political arm. So you could liken it to the difference between the king and the prime minister. Okay. Where I would, is, I'm essentially the king, whereas the leader of the council is essentially the prime minister. Sure. So those things are sort of separate because I'm the deputy leader of the opposition, but I'm still the chairman of the council. Sure. So I'm not part of the executive, so I don't essentially run the council. But I go to various events with my chain of office on and do the glad handing and promoting Rutland and things like that. Sure. Because that would be too onerous for the leader to do as well because it's that is a full-time job so you couldn't really do both roles and I think historically they tried to and then of course as it became more and more involved with more and more to do then it was it became impossible so so they separated it out so so how do you get on with the leader how is that Fine. relationship so, so, so do you have any kind of um, decision-making authority in that role um so I can... Uh, it's, not, it's difficult for me to say because I haven't got the constitution in front of me. <laughs> but I have to follow this. My, 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 my job is to uphold the constitution, basically, of the council because each council has a constitution. And, and it's my job is to run the council meetings as efficiently and fairly as, as I can, which is what I try to do. So that's a bit like Speaker of the House now. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. what it's like, yeah. yeah. So, so it's me that dictates... or I sort of orchestrate the meeting, essentially. So the choreography, the choreography of the meeting is, is my job. So I've got to say when people can speak, when they can't speak, and make rulings on to whether they've crossed the line, you know, because you know, you're only allowed to speak once on any debate item unless you want to make a point of order or a point of information. So it's it's all that sort of thing that you've got to be on top of. And um, I have the ultimate control, because I've got a mute button, <laughs> so I can shut people up, <laughs> which I had to do. I've only had to do it once, and, and I did it um, a couple of weeks ago at the flooding meeting we had, because uh, six members called a an emergency meeting of the council to discuss flooding, so that was the only item on the agenda. And we had something like 26 questions and deputations from members of the public. Ordinarily, for questions and deputations from the public, you're allowed 30 minutes and that's it. Unless you 
vote to suspend standing orders, which is basically suspend the rules for that meeting. So that was proposed and seconded and went through. So that meant we had to listen to every single one. And there's strict rules about questioning. So if you wanted to come to a council meeting as a member of the public and ask a question, what you do is you write it in your question so that the, the person who's going to answer it knows what it is, because it's obviously quite difficult, because basically we're all volunteers. So they, um, you read out your question. It is answered by the cabinet member or whoever is destined to answer it, and then you're allowed a supplementary question. What you're not allowed to do is make a big, long statement. And what people tried to do during the um, flooding meeting was make big, long statements. And one person in particular just went on and on and on. And I said, look, that is not a question. Where is your question? And wouldn't ask a question. So I said, I muted them and said, right, go back to your seat. Off you go. So you, it's, it's about keeping order, basically. Sure, yeah. Running on time, making yeah. people, I'm sure people Otherwise, we would have been there till now. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Brill. That's if you asked 100 people in Rutland the role of the chairman of the council. How many people do you think would know? <laughs> Two now. <laughs> as long as we were amongst well, the hundred. I think probably most people would would confuse the difference or, 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 or the roles of leader and chairman because, sure. of course, until I joined the council, I didn't know either why there was a separate leader and why there's a separate chairman. But, of course, I do now because I'm within the role. But it, it is quite a difficult concept. But that analogy between the sort of king and the the prime minister is one that is sort of illustrates it quite well, I think. Sure. And as you say, being the speaker of the house, where you've got to try and control everyone, and, you know, you can't say that. And Do you have to sign off on um, settled policy in no. the way that the king has to sign no. any act of no. parliament? No. There are various things I have to do. Um, there's, uh, if there's a civil emergency, then I have to chair the civil emergency meetings and that sort of thing. But I, I do have to meet um, members of the... If a, a member of the royal family comes, then I'm the first person that gets introduced to them and that sort of thing. So it's... Um, and I get invited to a lot of different events that... Uh, I was at the um, Leicester University graduation um, a couple of weeks ago. So was I. My son graduated. Oh, really? What was it on the, the, on the? It was Friday morning. I went. No, mine was the Thursday afternoon. Well, the reason I got invited was because um, someone from Rutland was getting a um, honorary degree. It was the um, Will Adderley, who's the, um, I think it's Sir Will Adderley, who's the owner of Dunelm, who lives in Hamilton. Oh. So he got an honorary degree. So, um, so myself and the um, the Lord Lieutenant went along. I've probably paid for a couple of bricks of his house then, because we've bought a lot of curtains over the years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, they've built up an amazing business because they started selling curtains on um, Leicester Market 40, 50 years ago, something like that. Maybe not even that long. And yeah. now they're a multi-billion pound... Success story. Yeah, industry. So, Andrew, if you could change one thing, what would it be? Change one thing with respect to what? What you're currently doing. Um, within the council. Change one thing? Yeah. Oh, within the council? Yeah. The amount of money we get from the government. Because we've been cut back sure, hugely. Yeah. And bizarrely, um, we get much less money from the government than most um, 
the most um, counties and local authorities. What, per capita? Yeah, because we get... We have to... 76% of uh, Rutland County Council's budget comes from the council tax. The average amount that comes from the council tax is 56% in the country. So we're 20% more. That's why our council tax is so high, because we get so much less from why? Central. Because they think we're rich. <laughs> and what have they based that assumption on? That's, a, that's his, history. It's always been like that. That's why our council tax is so high. And people often say, well, why don't we join with Leicestershire or Lincolnshire? That is much lower. That would, that I would suggest that would make no difference whatsoever because you'd still have the same level of council tax because we already share a lot of our services with Leicestershire and, and various things are farmed out, mm -hmm. like health and safety and, and things like that, to uh, Lincolnshire and different authorities. So your council tax would not reduce and you'd probably get two councillors on Leicestershire County Council, as we did when we were annexed by Leicestershire back in 1974. So, so you'd end up with probably worse services than you get now with no say or very little say. So that would undermine the, the um, democratic representation of the people of Rutland. Wow. So... Uh, there must have been some kind of formula, I guess. When I mean, does this date back to 1990 when council ta tax first arose, or does it, it go it back even well before that? I know the MP is trying to to get it levelled up because Alicia Cairns. yeah, because she's quite cross about it as well. Because of course, there's areas of poverty in Rutland, just the same as there is everywhere else. Uh, it's just that they're more hidden, and the the, the sort of front-facing part of Rutland that everyone sees is is one of reasonable affluence but that that hides the um the, the levels of, of of poverty that there are just that, just that they're not quite as as in your face like sure. if you go to leicester you'll see people sleeping on the streets we well, don't see that here in rutland but there's probably people who've got no money and are homeless so it's um yeah i mean it's it's appalling really and, and the amount of money that's been given to um, local authorities has dropped something like 40-50% in real terms over the last 20 years. <clears throat> so what, what we're trying to do is do more and more with less and less. So it's really difficult. And we've got something like, I think we've got three or four high-needs kids in the county, and we have to look after them, obviously, because they need looking after, costing 850000 a year or something like that. And... Um, <clears throat> Who knows, tomorrow a family could move into Rutland with two more high dependency needing kids, which could cost another half a million quid. Mm. So it's very difficult to, for, to budget for things like that because you, it's in statute that you have to look after people, quite right, but with no extra money. Mm. And we're starting to eat into our <clears throat> reserves a little bit, but we're a lot better off than, than most councils because we've had... But we've been prudent and we've had some very good what are called Section 151 officers, which is basically the accountant of the, um, of the council that looks after the money. And they've been really good with their spending. But all the low-hanging fruit, where we can save money, excuse the cliché, mm -hmm. um, has been taken. There's no easy options now. 
but we've got all these statutory responsibilities to look after the old people and the and the disabled and the sick and all that sort of stuff. And you know, we've got a special needs kids, as I just mm -hmm. mentioned. So th there's no way around that, and the government isn't giving us enough money. That uh, well, final question. Yeah. So, so where where do you see yourself in five, ten years' time? What's your what's your five, ten years' time? <laughs> what's your five years' time? What's your long-term plan? Uh, my long-term plan is to carry on doing as much as I can for the uh, betterment of society. I mean, what we didn't talk was about was my role as a um, magistrate. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I can do that till I'm 75. So that's 15 years down the line. So um, hopefully I'll still be doing that, and um, hopefully, as, as I say, doing because I like to do things that a are interesting and entertaining, and b are possibly for the for the general good. So if I can forward society a little bit, then all the better. That's great. I think you're doing an amazing job. It's really, really interesting. Thank you very much for your time today. I know the listeners are going to love that. Do you think? Yep. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking me. So, that's a wrap. And thank you for listening to our latest Pub Natter. If you visit timothyives.com forward slash pub natter, you will find photos, links, and more information about each episode. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please subscribe to ensure you don't miss a pub or one of our amazing guests. The Pub Natter theme tune is by Tom Arnold. That was a Pub Natter broadcast.